Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, December 3rd. Tijuana is not ready for Remain in Mexico's return. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. On Thursday, a judge denied an emergency request from the group Let Them Choose to block the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for San Diego Unified School District. A full hearing on the case is scheduled for December 20th. The mandate requires students who want to continue learning in person at San Diego Unified Schools to be fully vaccinated by January 4th. The Independent Redistricting Commission is redrawing the supervisorial districts in San Diego County. One local community-based organization is calling for changes that would allow better representation for Latinx people living in the North County. Lillian Serrano is co-director of Universidad Popular. She says Escondido, currently in District 3, which is made up of mainly coastal areas, should be put into District 5 with other inland communities. So what we are asking is really for them to keep us under one district. We want to have Escondido, San Marcos, Vista, Oceanside, Fallbrook, Palma Valley, Valley Center, all under one district that will allow us to really come together as our next community. A decision from the commission will be announced on December 15th. The upcoming baseball season is in question and not because of the pandemic. Major League Baseball owners have locked out players after their collective bargaining agreement with the Players Association expired at midnight on Wednesday. Lee Hacksaw Hamilton is a sports radio broadcaster in San Diego. And now we'll just have to wait and see as they stare down each other. That being said, they've got three months before we really bump up against the next important deadline, which is spring training, which is a moneymaker for each of these teams. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. The Biden administration will bring back the controversial Remain in Mexico program that forces asylum seekers to wait in Mexico for their immigration cases to be adjudicated. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis explores how this will impact Tijuana's already delicate migrant situation. Right now, there are barely enough beds for people already living in Tijuana's migrant shelters. And now that Remain in Mexico is coming back, Tijuana Mayor Montserrat Caballero says the city isn't ready. Preparados realmente no ninguna ciudad y yo creo que ningún país está preparado para exodos. Caballero doesn't think any city or state along the border is prepared for a mass influx of people. Tijuana currently takes in 200 deportees on a daily basis. And Caballero is being pressured by U.S. Customs and Border Protection to clear a makeshift migrant camp at the San Isidro border crossing. She says she has no plans to clear that camp. Y nos piden las autoridades del, del CBP si podemos abrir este, para repatriar por medio del chaparral. Consideramos que no, nos pusimos de acuerdo y seguimos solo recibiendo gente por OTAI. President Joe Biden tried to end the Remain in Mexico program, which was implemented by former President Donald Trump. But a court order forced him to restart it. And that was KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis.
During the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, the catchphrase, we're all in this together, was everywhere. But it soon became clear that some of us were more in this situation than others. Statistics revealed wide disparities in who was getting sick and where most people were catching the virus and what activities put most people at risk. Now, an in-depth investigative report by The Voice of San Diego is looking at more than 4,000 death certificates of San Diegans who died from COVID-19, and those disparities are clearer than ever. Voice of San Diego reporter Will Huntsberry, who, with fellow reporters Jesse Marks and Bella Ross, examined those San Diego deaths in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. Here's that interview. The headline in your report is, is startling. It says, a college degree was an insurance policy against death. Can you explain what that means? We don't know exactly why it is, but literally having a bachelor's degree meant you were much less likely to die from COVID-19 in San Diego and quite possibly across the United States. You know, um, people with a bachelor's degree, for whatever reason, were super insulated from the worst effects. And partially, maybe that's because they weren't doing essential work, let's say. But then again, you know, we know that most people who died were retired age. So that's not totally it. Maybe it's also telling us something about poverty and that people who have more education tend to make more money. But, you know, if you had a bachelor's degree, you were, were more than half is less likely to die as someone who didn't. And like you said, I just think that's really startling. And and we didn't have a, a handle on that level of detail about the disparity until now. Did you start out examining COVID deaths through the lens of education levels? We didn't necessarily start there. Um, we made a public records request for every death certificate during the first year um, of the pandemic for all COVID-related deaths because we really, you know, we thought it was going to be, we thought we knew something was going to come of it and we thought it was important to bear witness to this terrible death toll, you know, 4,000 people in a year in San Diego County. And then we discovered that those death certificates were really rich with information about education level, about the job a person had, about um, where they were born, whether it was in the United States or not. And so once we started crunching those numbers, you know, we just found some really uh, uniquely shocking and, and even terrifying stuff. Now, in your report, you profile a few of the people who died of COVID last year. Can you tell us the story of Gregory Denny of Hamul? Gregory Denny, he was a 48-year-old security guard at Taylor Guitars in El Cajon. But he was not your average 48-year-old. Um, he was actually working on finishing his bachelor's degree. He was married. He had a couple of kids. He, he'd served in the Gulf Wars. And in the summer of 2020, he wasn't finished with that bachelor's degree yet. And he came down with COVID. He was hospitalized and put in the ICU. And unfortunately, like so many people, he was killed by this virus. And with Mr. Denny, the university he was studying at, they actually awarded him his bachelor's posthumously because he he hadn't finished it. And so he was a member of the graduating class of 2021. And, you know, his story is really powerful. I'm certainly not saying that had he finished that bachelor's degree, he, he would have, um, you know, not died from COVID. But 
this was a working age man. He was 48 years old. And, you know, people with bachelor's degrees were much more likely to be able to stay at home. And, and when other people were at home, he was working his security guard job. And, and that is where his wife thinks he, he contracted COVID. There have been many ways to frame the difference in COVID death rates among populations. Another one is in the second part of your report, finding that more than half of the San Diegans who died were immigrants. Tell us about that. Yeah, we found so many disparities in these statistics that were big and scary. And I think we all knew there were these disparities, but we just didn't understand what a fine point was on it. I mean, in San Diego County, 23% of people are immigrants. But among those who died from COVID, 52% were immigrants. So there's this really huge disparity, just like with bachelor's degrees, and we don't totally understand it. There could be a lot of reasons that immigrants were more at risk. They were more likely to live in multi-generational housing. They're more likely to speak a different language, and maybe they weren't getting good information about COVID in their native language. The other statistic that was really shocking was people without a high school diploma. You know, Among immigrants who died, 50% did not have a high school diploma. Among non-immigrants, just 10% did not have a high school diploma. So, you know, education, again, seems to be a really important variable here. The biggest risk factor of death, though, remains among the elderly population, doesn't it? That's right. The median age was 76. You know, we know that COVID-19 hits old people much harder than young people. And our database shows that too. But but out of 4,000 deaths, you know, we also see in our database that 1,000 people were working age. They were 65 or younger. So, you know, I don't think most people um, think of dying before they're finish with their working age. And that's what happened to 25% of the people in our database. Now, you hinted uh, that one of the reasons that could account for this education level disparity, even though many of the people who died were already retired, is a chronic disparity in health results for people who are rich and poor and white and people of color. Can you tell us how that might have contributed to the higher death toll? You know, we've heard of a couple really COVID specific things, right? Maybe you're more, you were more likely to work in essential labor. You were more likely to ride the bus and that put you more in harm's way. But there's even like deeper issues at play about chronic illnesses like diabetes and um, hypertension and heart disease. In the poorest neighborhoods in San Diego, it's very hard to find a healthy grocery store. There's no Vons, there's no Trader Joe's, there's definitely not a Whole Foods. And so it's harder to eat well. And that means you're more likely to get diabetes. And what's also true about those areas is they're less walkable. It's harder to get exercise. There's less parks. That means you're more likely to be obese. You know, all these chronic conditions made it much more likely for a person to die from COVID. In our database, 80% of the people who died had a chronic health condition. But even just one layer deeper, Maureen, just the stress of poverty itself seems to put people at risk. We know that poorer children have higher blood pressures than their peers. And, you know, high blood pressure leads to hypertension and that can cause heart attack and stroke and hypertension itself puts you more at risk with COVID. And so, you know, the layers of how poverty interacts with this disease are, are deeply interwoven. Now, you know, I suppose if you asked most people on the street, they'd readily tell you that wealthier people get better medical care 
and are more protected from contagious disease than poorer people. So that in and of itself is not a shocking revelation. So what significance do you think this report has about the disparities in COVID deaths between rich and poor? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question, actually. And and I think you're right. I think people are aware that there have been disparities with COVID. But I think we were hearing a lot of that information over and over again during the height of the pandemic. And I think people were really overwhelmed, you know, um, and, and burnt out even on news at a certain point. You know, they were all personally going through something different. We were di- difficult. We were globally going through something difficult and awful. And I think now is a good time to revisit the impact of, of the, you know, the worst part of the pandemic we saw in that first year at a time when people can actually like absorb those disparities and think about their own communities and look around them and say, you know, wow, people in certain zip codes did really well, you know, that, and people in other ones did really badly and, and, and not just by a little bit. And I think that has the potential to drive decision-making in the future about public policy around health decisions, you know, where to put testing centers for, for a, in a pandemic, where to put vaccine centers, we should be putting them in the poorest areas. Uh, and, and we should be unequivocal about that because I think our data shows that, you know, you don't need those support things nearly as much in the richer neighborhoods. And so, I think um, I think it's a good time for us to relook at this and absorb it. And, you know, hopefully it can drive public policy in the future. And that was Voice of San Diego reporter Will Huntsbury speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. The Marines are celebrating 100 years in San Diego this week. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says the Marine Corps Recruit Depot has become a city landmark. COVID protocols limited the public celebration, but San Diego's original permanent Marine base celebrated 100 years this week. Marine historian Joni Schwartzwetter says Marine Corps Recruiting Depot San Diego was part of a vision for the city. As the years went on since recruit training first moved here in 1923, um, more and more focus was paid to recruit training. Um, It was 1948, though, when the base was officially redesignated as Marine Corps Recruit Depot. The base now trains all male recruits west of the Mississippi. After a long delay, this year they also began training female recruits. Several of the original buildings are on the National Register of Historic Places. And that was KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. During the holiday season, many people donate money to charities, but California's attorney general is warning about scams. KPBS's Melissa May says he's shared some tips on how to protect your generosity. As the season of giving begins, many charitable organizations come together to support their communities. Unfortunately, scammers are also on the prowl for people's holiday donations. California Attorney General Rob Bonta stopped by the Logan Heights Community Development Corporation to share tips and resources on how to avoid scams while donating this holiday season. Bonta says to be cautious of social network fundraising. If you see a solicitation in your newsfeed, make sure the charity you are donating to is legitimate. 
If it is, find out whether you will be charged a fee for donating and what percentage of your donation will go to the social media platform. To learn about all nine tips to avoid charitable scams, go to oag.ca.gov donations. And that was KPBS's Melissa May. Coming up, we have part two of an investigation into protecting outdoor workers from wildfire smoke. California already has rules in place to do so, but they're rarely enforced, and recent efforts to bolster enforcement were blocked. We'll have more on that next, just after the break. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can, all right? Thanks. And now for part two of an investigation we brought you yesterday, KQED's Ferida Javala Romero has been investigating the state's failure to enforce regulations meant to protect farm workers and others exposed to wildfire smoke. She found that earlier this year, lawmakers tried to boost enforcement, but Governor Gavin Newsom's administration stepped in and blocked their efforts. At a food bank in the town of Viola in Fresno County, volunteers help Alejandra Beltran load groceries into cardboard boxes and carry them to her pickup truck. Beltran is a farm worker. This fall, she worked in the fields harvesting grapes for raisins, she says, including shifts and thick wildfire smoke. Personally, me, it affects me on my, you know, my chest. And I get very, like, a horsey voice. And then produces a lot of cough. Tiny particles and wildfire smoke can trigger asthma attacks, strokes, and other serious health problems. Since 2019, California employers have been required to protect workers when smoke levels become unhealthy by offering them N95 masks, for example, or moving them indoors. But farm workers like Beltran told us they never heard about those regulations. She says she never got an N95 nor the training employers are supposed to give workers about the health hazards of smoke. As far as my knowledge, we weren't told anything. An estimated 4 million Californians work outdoors. But data obtained by KQED and the California Newsroom show that over the more than two years the smoke regulations have been in place, the state dispatched inspectors to only 26 employers. That led to just 11 citations for violations of the wildfire smoke standard. 11 violations, you know, obviously is a very low number. California Assemblyman Robert Rivas chairs the Assembly's Agriculture Committee. He introduced a bill that would have required the government to send strike teams of inspectors to the fields whenever smoke levels become dangerous. 
having a mechanism of enforcement is incredibly important. But the provision was deleted last summer after opposition from Governor Gavin Newsom's administration. That's according to internal documents we viewed and interviews with people close to the negotiations. You know, my effort here was not trying to penalize growers in any way and, you know, uh, or the agricultural industry, but it was to, you know, achieve a level of accountability. Governor Newsom's press office did not respond to multiple requests for comment, and neither did his Labor and Workforce Development Agency, which documents show wanted the strike teams removed. Dan Lucido did talk to us. As acting chief of Kalosha, she's in charge of enforcing the smoke rules. She also didn't want to comment on the changes to the bill. To the extent that any amendments were made, it would have been the author's decision to amend the bill, not ours. Lucido says her agency is a leader in providing worker protections, including against wildfire smoke. She says Kalosha is not opposed to sending strike teams out on smoky days. She acknowledged they've been short on outreach and blamed the pandemic. But now she says the agency is trying to get the word out about the smoke regulations, like through this video in English and Spanish posted on their website. In California, el humo de los incendios puede afectar a los lugares de trabajo que se But many farm workers say they still don't know about the protections. So the rule's not working, says Nayamin Martinez. She directs the Central California Environmental Justice Network. I, I always find it very ironic when the agencies brag about, oh, we have the most stringent rules in the entire nation. Well, you can have rules, but if you don't enforce them, then there's nothing good out of them. Martinez's organization surveyed more than 300 farm workers in San Joaquin Valley earlier this year. Nearly 60% reported that their employers did not provide N95 masks or that they did not know what N95s were. In Fresno, I'm Farida Jabala Romero. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful weekend.